happy to welcome you. I'm Stan Key. Uh, my wife, Katie Key, is sitting right on the back row, and I'm glad to have her with us. Uh, we just arrived about two hours ago, so we're still getting uh, acclimated uh, to this. But it's a real, real honor to be here with you. Theology of the body. What does the word theology mean? Theos and logos. Do you like to divide words? Theos means what? God. Logos means word or study of. Theology is the study of God. But how do you do the study of God of the body? Theology of the body. We can understand the biology of the body or the anatomy of the body, but theology. So that's our attempt. And uh, I actually think this is one of the most life-changing thoughts one can have. And I'm not a doctor. I haven't studied medicine. I'm a pastor. Uh, but I get the privilege of hanging out with doctors. I do uh, have a title called the Spiritual Dean of PACS. That's Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. And if you've met the PACS groups, they're all throughout the building. But it's one of the great privileges of my life. But, uh, so I'm interacting with medicine and theology, and that sort of floats my boat. Are most of you in medical school? I don't know. I'd sort of like to know. I've got a lot of nods there. Oh, I get some shake heads. Uh, I'd love to meet each one of you. This uh, excites me. I don't feel like I'm an expert on this subject at all, but this is a subject that excites me, and it changes the way I think and changes the way I live. For a long time, this was sort of academic for me, theology of the body. That sounds academic. And then about 18 months ago, Katie and I started on a journey, and I won't give you details, but in an 18-month period, between the two of us, we've had a heart attack, cancer, and a stroke. Katie's in a wheelchair back here, and we're dealing with bodies. And this is no longer academic. This is real stuff. And uh, the doctors understand this in real ways. And I just have such respect for what you do. That does not make me an authority on the subject by any means, but it does make me passionately interested about it. Um, let me begin with a prayer, okay? Let's start with that. Father, we thank you that we can be here together and talk about a subject that is not typically covered in medical school. And it's a subject that affects not just our minds and our practice, but it affects the way we think, the way we feel, the way we approach life and sickness and death and health. And so we ask today that you would be our teacher. Father, I confess that I have nothing to offer these dear men and women except the truth that comes from the word you've revealed to us. So let your word speak to us, and we would ask that your spirit and your word be our teacher. In Jesus' name and for the sake of the kingdom, amen. Um, this session ends at what time? Is it 45 minutes, 50 minutes, something like that? If you start walking out on me, I'll know it's over. How's that? 
All of us have blind spots. There are things we don't see. They're there, but we don't see them. And to illustrate it, when my wife and I lived in France, we lived there for 10 years as missionaries in the suburbs of Paris. Our next-door neighbor, named Francis, worked for a company. And I asked him one day, Francis, where do you work? And he said, I work for Air Liquide, liquid air. I said, never heard of liquid air. Then, after that day, it seemed like every road I turned on, Every time I turned on the television, there was liquid air, liquid air, liquid air. It was on trucks, it was on billboards, it was on commercials. It had always been there. I just had a blind spot. Now, to me, that illustrates what we're going to talk about. The Bible is full of information about the body. And I mean the body. But when I became a Christian, asked Jesus into my heart, and started this journey with Christ, I had no clue that that affected my body. I knew it affected my soul, my spirit, my heart, but my body? It just didn't even connect. But since I've started this study on the theology of the body, and what does the Scriptures say about the body... It's almost on every page of the Bible. There it is. Oh, there it is again. There it is again. It's like God is interested in our bodies. Now, what I like to do most of the time when I teach in a group like this, I like to take a scripture and just sort of examine the text. What we're going to do here is a survey. So it's a little more abstract. It's a little more academic. It's more topical. I don't like that approach as much, but I'm going to try to help us get a big picture, a picture of the forest, not the trees and not the leaves on the trees, okay? But the big picture. Um, Okay, you got, does everybody have one of these? I gave out 300. Did we give them all out? There's still a few left on the back table, so if you don't, but this is uh, what you can take with you, and if I skip something, You've got the reference. I've got some blanks to fill in. If you're obsessive-compulsive and I leave one out, the answers are in the back. Uh, But the answers are there. Mainly, it's just sort of a pedagogical device to keep teaching, to keep you engaged. I don't want you to go to sleep on me. And I don't think you will. Understanding the body. I'm just sort of going to talk through these points. Um, Cultural obsession. As a culture, and I'm speaking mainly of Western, mainly American culture, but Western culture, I don't know what it's like in the East as much, or in Africa or South America, but as a culture, we are more body conscious than I think we've ever been, and we are more confused about the body. And I just started a list of things like, think of sports, think of obesity, think of anorexia, Think of tattoos. Think of the clothing choice you made this morning to cover your body. What was your intent when you chose the color and the style? Uh, Think of health care. Think of pornography. Think of sex. Don't think of sex too much, but um, we're obsessed with the body as a culture 
But yet, what is the body? Where did it come from? And how should we handle it? New forms for ancient heresies. Various forms of Greek philosophy. If you can remember back to your philosophy classes, Platonism, Stoicism, Epicureanism, Gnosticism, etc. I chose those specifically. Stoicism and Epicureanism. If you read the book of Acts, when Paul, the apostle, preached the gospel in Athens on Mars Hill, the scripture tells us specifically Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were listening to him. And they listened to him until, because they were intrigued by this new cult he was preaching about some carpenter from Nazareth. And they listened to him until he announced the resurrection of the body. Not the immortality of the soul. They understood that. Greeks understand that very well. But Paul said, I'm not talking about the immortality of the soul. I'm talking about the resurrection of the body. And the Stoics and the Epicureans laughed at him. They said, that's ridiculous. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. And it would be if it weren't true. So, various forms of Greek philosophy tended to fall into one of two ditches when it came to understanding the body. One, the body is something to be glorified, even deified. Think of Greek statues or Roman statues or frescoes and how the body... I, I put one on the front, the discus thrower. It's like, or uh, yeah, it's, it's the body and it's almost deifying the body. We just lived through the Olympics. And uh, think of beach volleyball. <laughs> and the body. It's very impressive what a body can do, and beautiful bodies. Uh, so one form of Greek philosophy fell in the ditch. It's something to be glorified. The other ditch, the body is something to be despised. At death, the soul can finally be freed from this prison house of the body. Remember when Socrates drank the hemlock he basically was saying, I'm so grateful to finally be rid of this prison I've been living in. That's Greek thinking. That's not gospel thinking. It relates, but they're not synonyms. Matter doesn't matter in this ditch. The body is... This has huge implications for medicine. has huge implications. And if you think Greek, it's going to affect the way you treat the body. My appeal is to think biblical. A spiritualized faith. These Greek notions of the body influenced early Christian thinking. I gave a footnote there, particularly the church at Corinth, which was in Greece. When Paul preached the gospel in Corinth and a church was born, those born-again believers had born-again hearts, but they had Greek heads. <laughs> and so when they thought about their bodies, their mind wasn't yet redeemed, sanctified, whatever terms you want to use. And Paul says, we've got to get your mind redeemed so that you think rightly about the body. For example, in Corinth, 
there was a man, a member of the church, who was sleeping with his stepmother. <laughs> it's not a very pleasant thought. Sleep with your stepmother. And the church did nothing about it. And Paul was more concerned about the church doing nothing than about the pervert who was sleeping with his stepmother. And the reason was because they were saying, well, what's the deal? I mean, the guy's a member of the church. He asked Jesus into his heart. He's probably been baptized. His spirit is right. What difference does it make who he's sleeping with? And Paul says, it makes a big difference in the gospel. It may not in Greece, but in the gospel, it ma matter matters. And I think the Corinthian Christians said, really? Tell us more. I don't know that I get that. And if I succeed in doing that this, this afternoon with you, I will have had a huge success because the Bible has some amazing things to say about the body. These Greek notions of the body influenced early Christian thinking and continue to be found in churches today where believers think of their faith in spiritualized terms. Think of words like spiritual formation. You ever heard of spiritual formation? It's a great term. But think about it a minute. Spirit formation. In other words, that leaves my body out of the equation. Let me just tell you, Jesus died not just to save your spirit. He died to redeem your body. And a lot of you are saying, I've never thought about that before. And I want to say to you, I had never thought about this before until I started studying this. But it's on every page of the Bible. There it is. It's right there. This is how most of us came to Christ. You need to ask Jesus into your heart. You need to get your soul saved. Or you need to have the mind of Christ. That's all true. That's wonderful. It's good. But it leaves out the body. So we tend to be like that member of the Corinth community church sleeping with his stepmother who say, well, what difference does it make with what I do with my body? And not just about sex, but how I eat, how I exercise. My body doesn't matter, does it? Yeah. What does the body have to do with the Christian faith? I am so glad you asked. Welcome to our seminar. That's what we're here to look at. Back to the Bible. While the contemporary church may occasionally talk about the importance of exercise, diet, and sexual purity, rarely can one find a developed theology of the body. I'd be tempted to ask for a show of hands if anybody's ever wrestled with even this concept of the theology of the body. Most of us have heard sermons about, you need to exercise. Don't be overweight and stay sexually pure. Okay, we sort, but that sort of comes out as morality. I'm talking about theology, not just morality, but how we think. Uh, rarely can one find a developed theology of the body. Please see the footnote. One notable exception is Pope John Paul II. I'm not a Catholic, but let me tell you, the Pope has done a great service to the global church in raising this whole concept of the theology of the body. If you try to read what he wrote, if you're like me, it's way over my head. 
And it's very Roman Catholic. If you're a Catholic, that might work for you, but for me, I'm not a Roman Catholic. But I appreciate very much what he's trying to do. There's a book here by Christopher West, Theology of the Body for Beginners. (laughs) I like that. And it's not like for dummies, these silly books for dummies. No, this is a serious book. But it's about 120 pages, and he says, let me try to put in layman's terms what the Pope is trying to say. And I find it very helpful. You don't have to agree with all of it, but just get on board with what does the Bible... Here we are. Yeah, uh, this workshop is a humble attempt to introduce thinking Christians. You may not have realized this yet, but there's a lot of Christians who think that Paul said, uh, be transformed Not by the renewal of your mind, but by the removal of your mind. (laughs) Please, please. When Jesus said the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, with all your body. What was he saying? He was saying a lot. Use your head, use your body to express your love for the one who died on a cross and poured out his spirit to redeem you. Love him with your whole being, not just with your heart and spirit. That just getting you warmed up for the real stuff. Okay, to, enter, to a revolutionary concept, what the Bible says about the body. And I want to dare to believe that what I'm sharing here will do for you what it's doing for me, it's a little bit like a time bomb. You, you hear this, and it doesn't explode right away. It's just sort of like, this is just sort of, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what's going on. But you sort of let this, internalize this bomb, and the day will come where this just sort of, I think, has the power to create a reformation. I choose my words. A reformation, even of the church that Jesus died to redeem our bodies. And matter matters. It's like, that'll preach. That'll, 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 that'll change your future. Turn the page. So what does the Bible say about the body? So here we go. I'm going to try to survey some big things. So I'm throwing out a lot of stuff at you. Let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm just going to summarize it. The human body, the creation story tells us, is unique. Anybody read Blaise Pascal? Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher in the 17th century. And he wrote a book called Pensée, which means thoughts. And one of his most famous Pensée, if any French speakers are in in here, man, or l'homme, in French, l'homme, Nay, ni ange ni bet. Man is neither angel nor beast. That was his thought, just a concise, succinct thought. What he was saying is, what is a human person? We're not angels, we're not divine, we're not deity, but we're not animal. We're related to animals, but we're not animals. We're unique. In the universe, a human person and the body we have is unique. 
while the rest of the created order was spoken into existence, God personally crafted man, remember, out of dirt. I love that we were made out of dirt. That'll, that'll humble you right there. But it's dirt that God breathed into the breath of life, His own Spirit. And that'll make you stand up and walk erect and saying, I'm like God, I'm like dirt. I'm an amphibian. I live in two realms. I'm unique. I'm not a monkey. I'm not God. I'm a human being. And I have an embodied presence. Adam doesn't have a body. Adam is a body. You can't imagine Adam without a body. If you take Adam's body away, you take Adam away. That's creation. Um, neither angel nor animal. Humans alone bear the image of God. A lot we could say. They come in only two models in Genesis. And it's not black or white. It's not old and young. It's not rich or poor. It's not Republican and Democrat. Thank God. It's male and female. Five years ago, I would have said that, and we would have all just been counting light bulbs. It's like, well, any idiot knows that. But in the day in which we live, gender has become a passionate debate. And part of the theology of the body is getting at what does it mean to be male and what does it mean to be female. And just like you didn't choose whether to be born or not, you didn't choose your gender. God, the Creator, assigned it to you. Bruce Jenner thinks he can choose his gender, his, her gender, whatever he, it is. I don't know. And I'm not meaning to be disrespectful. I'm meaning to say we need to get back to what does this... If we're followers of Scripture, we need to know what it says. Man's uniqueness is seen in language. He stands erect. Dominion, moral behavior, clothing. Why don't dogs wear clothes? Clothes. That's a, very, that's a silly way to ask a very serious question. The opposable thumb. Adam not only has a body, he is a body. Implications. If I get caught up here, um, you know, part of the difference in man and animal. Here we are, a bunch of humans talking about what it means to be human. Can you imagine a group of monkeys gathered to talk about monkeyness? No. This is part of the image of God that we bear that makes us nianjnibet, neither angelic nor animal. We're human persons in an embodied presence. Implications. The body is good. It's not to be despised. When you treat a body as a doctor, you are handling something of inestimable worth. You're not a veterinarian. That's another question that's interesting. What's the difference in a doctor and a veterinarian? I just plead with you to think on that a long time because there's a profound difference. We know it in our spirits, 
but we often don't know how to articulate it in our heads. Man is not an animal, though we're related to animals. And gender is a given, not a choice. Let's keep moving. B, the first point about what the Bible says about the body was the human body is unique. The second point, God has a body. It's like, what? This is why they laughed at Paul on Mars Hill. I said, that's, that's ridiculous. And you might be quoting John 4 to me, where Jesus says, God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. That's all well and good until you come to this thing called the Incarnation. Incarne. You know the word C-A-R-N. What's chili con carne? It's chili with meat. Incarnation is God with meat on. It's Jesus. Jesus is God with meat. And if you're sitting there saying, that's incredible. That's exactly the right response to when the gospel is preached. It's like, that's who Jesus is? Yes. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, we saw his glory. He was fully man. He was fully God. God has a body. In Philippians 2, Paul says it this way, Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He emptied himself and became a servant and became a man. It's like, wow. You can just sort of spend all Christmas thinking about what Christmas really means. God with meat on. The doctrine of the incarnation, and I like to use the word the enfleshment of God. It just has a sort of a rawness to it that the word incarnation maybe has lost through usage. The enfleshment of God. It's blasphemous to Jews and to Muslims. And to Greeks, it's irrational. People will laugh at you. What do you mean God has flesh, a body? After his resurrection, Jesus ascended bodily into heaven and promised to return in the same manner, bodily. John calls those who deny these truths antichrist. Look it up. <laughs> check, check, check me out on these things. John says those who deny Jesus in the flesh are antichrist. That's how serious this doctrine is to the gospel most of us in this room say we believe in. It's the enfleshment of God. God has a body. So the implications are that Jesus models what true humanity should look like. Remember when Pilate brought him out for trial? He said, Behold the man. That's a great statement. And I think it means behold manhood. Behold personhood. This is what we're supposed to be like. This is Adam who never fell. And as descendants of Adam and Eve, this is the model of how we're to live. Though God is spirit, his triune being now includes a bodily reality. 
When you pray to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God in three persons, at least God the Son, in heaven, if I understand Scripture correctly, is still incarnate. He has a flesh being in the Godhead. It's like, that's the most radical thing I've ever heard. It is. And he's going to come back. In fact, most of us think when we die, we're going to go to heaven. But actually, the Bible says, no, when the end comes, heaven is going to come to earth. We don't go there, it comes here. And the earth is renewed and we all get new bodies. Hallelujah is right. That'll make a shouting Christian out of you if you think about it long enough. And it ought to. Um, God understands the human condition. I don't know if you've ever prayed like this to God, but if you ever said, God, you don't have a clue how hard my life is right now. You, you, don't, you sit up there in your throne and with your beautiful heaven... You don't have a clue what I'm going through down here on earth. As soon as you say that, and you're thinking biblically, you'll find yourself hushed, saying, Forgive me, God, you do have a clue. In fact, I'm the one who doesn't have a clue on what it means to be a person. You suffered. You died. You were rejected. You were stripped. You were beaten. Your best friends betrayed you. When you pray, you are praying to someone who understands the human condition to the depths. That's good news. So, the third bullet there is matter matters. Matter matters. Not just your body, but the earth matters. The atmosphere matters. Ecology matters. I mean, matter matter. God cares about not just spirit. He cares about matter including your body. C, how are we doing? I don't know if we'll get through or not. We'll try. Jesus gave what? His body. Jesus didn't give his, only his time or his talents or his wisdom. He gave his body. And he said, no one takes it from me. I'm giving it. Jesus, when you look at the life of Jesus, don't ever say, oh, it was such a great life. It was so unfortunate it had to end so badly when they took his life. Don't think that way. The Bible says no one took his life. He could have called the legion of angels to rescue him any time he wanted. He gave his body in communion. What does the pastor or the priest say? He quotes the words of Jesus when he gives you the wafer or the bread. This is my what? Body. Now, there's been a lot of debate on what that actually means. I'm not interested in the debate. I'm just interested in the vocabulary at the moment. He gave his body. In his death on the cross, he not only saved our souls, he redeemed our bodies. There's healing in the atonement as well as forgiveness of sins. Now, that doesn't mean we're all going to be healthy, wealthy, and happy until we die. 
No, even in the New Testament, disease is part of our fallen condition. Sometimes miracle healings occur. Sometimes miracle healings don't. My wife is in a wheelchair. Why, why can't God heal her? She's right here. We ask that question every day. I don't have answers to that, but I know that's not condition. There is healing. As the wounded healer, Jesus models how all gospel ministry is to be done through self-giving love. He came. He didn't write a check and put it in the mail. He didn't send somebody else. I say that because I'm speaking to doctors and future doctors and nurses and dentists. It's very tempting to say, well, I'll just stay here, make a lot of money, and send somebody else to the world. That's not how redemption comes to the world. You have to give your body. Sorry. (laughs) That's how it works. That's how life came to you, and that's how life comes to others. Uh, Paul said it this way, Death works in us so that life can work in you. I get to die so you can live. Isn't that wonderful? And then you get to die so somebody else can live. And if we do that for eternity, for everyone, welcome to the kingdom of God. We'll all be alive because somebody else gave us life. That's how the kingdom works. Um, On the back of your brochure, Jim Ritchie, are you back there? Jim Ritchie introduced me to T.S. Eliot who's somebody else that's over my head. But, Jim, I've never forgotten this poem. And I thought of you when I put it on there. Jim's a doctor in Kenya, super guy. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. But get to know that poem. It's a, I love the third stanza. The whole earth is our hospital. Isn't that a great line? The whole world is all of our hospital because everybody's sick. And you have the cure if you're a child of God and part of the cure is just like he gave his body so you could live you get to give your body so others can live I didn't get a hallelujah or a praise God on that one but let me assure you that's how the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth people are laying down their lives It's called martyrdom. Martyrdom is part of the job description of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You get to do what he did. That's what I'm going to preach on tomorrow morning, by the way, so I've already given you a heads up. Implications. Salvation for sinners is possible not by some sovereign decree. It's not like God sits on a heaven sits on a throne in heaven and just sort of, okay, I want you to be saved and you to be saved. That's not how salvation comes, if I understand the Scripture and the Gospel. Salvation comes only through God's great act of self-giving love. The atonement makes possible the saving of our souls and 
the redemption of our bodies. Authentic ministry must always be incarnational. It comes in a body. I've watched doctors in Africa <laughs> touch a patient, pray with the patient. Um, it's powerful. It's incarnated gospel. It's not just a tract. It's not just a tape. It's there's a bodily presence that brings Christ into the room. What a privilege. None is greater. Let's keep moving. D. The resurrection of the body. It was no disembodied spirit that rose from the dead on Easter morning. Listen to what Jesus said. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. I think I spent the first 30 years of my Christian life sort of thinking that when Jesus rose from the dead, it was probably sort of like Casper the Friendly Ghost. You know, he just sort of floats or disembodied, disembodied, but sort of, you, sort of spiritual. And it feels spiritual. That's not how he came. In fact, he was so ordinary when Mary saw the second person of the Trinity risen from the dead, you know who she thought he was? The gardener. <laughs> it's like, that is incredible. How do you mistake the gardener for the second person of the Trinity? That's how bodily he came. That's how glorious the body is. Even a gardener's body is glorious. I don't even know what to do with all this. It's just, it's a great story. Get to know your Bible. Get to know your Bible. Um, though his new body had unusual powers, it could appear behind closed doors, for example, it was quite normal. Mary thought he was the gardener. Paul calls it a, listen to this word, a spiritual body or a bodily spirit. You know what an oxymoron is? An oxymoron is when you put two words together that are mutually contradictory, like a square circle or jumbo shrimp or the United States. <laughs> that sort of resonates, doesn't it? A spiritual body. Just think about that. That's how Paul described the resurrection body. It's a body, but it has some new properties. But it still looks like the gardener. <laughs> it's like, wow, I can't wait to get there. This is, this is going to be exciting. Um, in Athens, the philosophers, believing in the immortality of the soul, listened to Paul preach until he proclaimed the resurrection of the body and then they laughed. That's ridiculous. No, it's not. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it happens in time and space. And if it's not true, I plead with you, please stop this Jesus search right now and go try Buddha or Mohammed or somebody else. Life is too short if it's not true. But if it's true, do what Thomas did. And say, my Lord and my God, you came... 
And you came to redeem us. I want to give my life to something like that. Implications. After death, believers will rise bodily. They will not float about in heaven as disembodied spirits, but rather will receive new bodies and live on a new earth. Second bullet, the human body, therefore, is of inestimable worth. I didn't give you enough space on that line there, sorry. Inestimable worth. I don't know if you're a C.S. Lewis reader, but C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, he says this, You've never met a mere mortal. Every human you meet is either a future angelic being in glory or a future demon from hell. But every human being, there is no such thing as an ordinary human being because there are images of God all around you. Go read The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis nails it. Third bullet, I just threw this in right before I went to press yesterday afternoon. Should this affect the way we think about cremation? And I'm just going to leave it as a question. I don't quite know what to do with cremation, but I know historically the church has struggled with it. Not because of, well, are we destroying something? No, we've all understand what's at work, but because the potential disrespect it shows for the body. At least that was the thought pattern. I'll leave it as a question. I'm not giving answers to this. You're free to disagree on this. This is not an easy one. But I, it's, it relates to the body. And I, for one, want to sort of reintroduce the question to the church. Because I hear a lot of people talk about cremation with no theological thinking at all. I may have gotten in trouble on saying something like that. Let me just quote Romans 8. doesn't get better than this. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So if you're indwelled by the Spirit of God, it's the same Spirit in you that is the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Wow. E. Let's keep moving. Um, God wants my body. Romans 12.1 Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, key verse in the whole book of Romans, to present your souls, hearts, spirits, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is reasonable worship. Worship is big in the contemporary church. And most of us think of worship, oh, I get to give my spirit and my heart to God. That's good. But don't stop there. Paul says what he really wants is your body. That has life-changing implications. And if we worship as we ought to worship, every Sunday when we're raising our hands, excited about the songs we're singing, give Him your body. Every member of your body. He wants it. He died for it. Popular preaching 
emphasizes how God wants our souls, our hearts, our spirits, our minds. But the gospel underscores that he wants our bodies as well. Our body is a temple for his spirit, and thus we are to glorify God in our bodies. In the Bible, this relates especially to how we practice our sexuality. When the Bible talks about the body, often it's talking about sexuality. And this is why in our culture, the debate about gender and the debate about marriage desperately needs people who can think biblically and theologically about the body. Not just culturally, not just genetically, or not just biologically or hormonally. Those all have their place. But think theologically about gender, about marriage. Because it goes to the foundation of human culture, how we understand gender and marriage. And the Bible has a lot to say. And if God's people are naive or ignorant, or hopefully not on the wrong side, then we need to bring back into the debate these kind of concepts into the discussion. Implications. The gospel addresses us as whole persons. Refusing to make a hard and fast separation between soul and body. You study the healing miracles of Jesus, and you answer the question for me, was Jesus dealing with that person's body, or was he dealing with that person's soul? And the answer is usually yes. <laughs> he, he, he didn't see the difference, I think. He was, he was discerning, but he saw the person. The person has a body, and the body is sick. The person has a soul, and the soul is sinful. And both need help. Both need the blood of Christ. Both need the spirit of Pentecost. Biblically, second bullet, it is impossible to love the Lord with one's soul and live in willful, continual, unrepentant sin with one's body. I could get shot for that. Because the church is full of people, you and I both know it, who have developed a theology that permits them to love Jesus with their spirits, but live for the devil with their body. Whether it involves sexuality, or food, or whatever it is. And the gospel just doesn't make those separations. It says, he redeemed you, body, mind, and spirit. Last bullet, your body is meant to glorify God. Your clothing, your shape, your weight, your health, your sexuality, your outward behaviors. Let's keep moving. We're going to finish this. I think we've got ten minutes. Is that what are you thinking? Okay, i get a nod here. F. Ministry to others includes their bodies. Although Jesus knew he was sent into the world to preach and to give his life as a ransom for others, he consistently showed a genuine concern for bodily needs, sickness, hunger, etc. 
He ministered to the whole person. This means that ministry to human bodies is a legitimate activity in and of itself. I think that's important to say to an incredible group of people studying to be healthcare professionals. I, my subtitle that I chose on the front, Seeing Medicine as a Gospel Imperative. I sort of liked that subtitle. That it's a gospel imperative to take care of the body. Don't stop with the body, but it is, it, it's, it's, it's a legitimate ministry. Jesus showed us how it was done. Implications. Those who minister to physical needs, such as doctors, must also look for opportunities to apply the gospel to the root causes of human suffering. For example, if someone has cirrhosis of the liver because they're a drunk, an alcoholic, you know, I don't, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how you handle these things, but I hope you don't just fix the liver. I hope you find a means to address the root problem. And in all disease, in all human malfunctions, the gospel seeks to find the root cause, sin, unbelief, false doctrines, etc. Second bullet, those who minister to spiritual needs, pastors, for example, must also look for opportunities to apply the gospel to areas where sin has had devastating symptoms. The last two bullets just illustrate what I just said. In dealing with the paralytic in Mark 2, Jesus began by addressing the sin problem. Remember the story of when they let the paralytic on the pallet down through the roof? And they, they just interrupted the sermon, just boom. There was this paralyzed man lying in front of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to him? What they wanted him to say, the friends, rise and walk. But Jesus looked at the paralytic and said, Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> it's like, we didn't bring him here to have his sins forgiven. The guy needs to walk. But Jesus just doesn't think like we do. Praise God. Praise God. He saw something going on there. But if you turn a few pages in the Bible to John chapter 5, there was a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus walked up to him and said, Do you want to be made well? What a silly question to ask a man who's been sick for 38 years. But what a psychologically astute question to ask. Do you really want to walk? Or do you just like your deformity? And like being able to beg and not have to go to work every day? Do you want to be made well? And it was after he addressed the physical issue, making him walk, he said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And I think the guy said, What could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? What could be worse? It's like, frankly, there's a lot of things that could be worse. So sin no more. It's like, Jesus, you're amazing. And he's inviting you into his ministry. Let's close. Implications. Trying to summarize what I've been talking about. Four points. 
implications for life in general. The human body is a marvel of God's creative genius. Even in its fallen state, it still reflects the image of God. Less than God, but more than animal, the body of, is of inestimable worth. You've never met an ordinary human being. You've never met a mere mortal. And as doctors, what a privilege you have to deal with the body. You're not veterinarians. And you're not scientists alone. You're dealing with human persons. I really envy you. I've been a pastor in my life. I like what I do. But I think the opportunities you have are sometimes opportunities I can only dream of having in how you touch people at their point of need. B. Implication of what we've said for understanding salvation. Christ came to redeem the whole man, soul and body. The blood of Christ on Calvary and the Spirit poured out at Pentecost are made available to all so that men and women can become new creations. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. And walk as Jesus walked. That reflects our bodies. That impacts our bodies. Our bodies are meant to bring glory to God. So if you're a child of God, if you've asked Jesus into your heart, and His salvation is not saving your body, get moving. <laughs> Let His work continue. C. For health care workers. Christian health care professionals should see their work as an extension of Christ's work. While urgent needs may make it difficult to address deeper issues, medical workers should always endeavor, Christian medical workers, should always endeavor to minister to the whole person through words, through touch, through prayer, through compassion. And if I had another session, it would be on those words, studying how Jesus, what words did he use with sick people? How did he use touch? You want a rich study. Study Jesus and touch. A therapeutic touch. Sometimes he touched. Sometimes he was touched. And the touch had therapeutic impact. In the ten months, we were 84 days in hospitals with Katie. And sometimes the touch of a nurse would make the whole day different. Just, I'm with you. I'm with, I know it hurts. I'm with you. Just don't have to give words. Just touch. Uh, prayer. A doctor praying. You have no impact. Any idea how powerful that is. And compassion. Several times it tells us in the Scripture, Jesus was moved with compassion. The Greek word is splotna, and it comes from the word bowels. He felt 
And the King James says, the bowels of mercy. He felt their pain. He, he Viscerally, he felt it. Healthcare workers can be channels of grace. A channel of grace. A means of grace. A channel through which God mediates His grace to the person before you. And finally, for sexuality. The Bible highlights sexual matters when it discusses the body. Followers of Christ will take their cue from Scripture rather than culture. That'd be our third talk. <laughs> if we could, What does the Bible say about human sexuality? Let me just assure you, it says a lot. And it is glorious. And what it has to say about gender is... It'll blow your circuits. Because he wants you to be fertile. And when the genders operate as they should... Fertility and procreation. What a wonderful word, procreation. But same-sex marriage is barren by definition because fertility comes when two different become one. But that's another lesson. For that, just get hungry for that. Take your cue from Scripture, not culture, in sorting out the many issues related to human sexuality, gender, sexual activity, marriage, pornography, reproduction. I've got 29 minutes after, which I think is one minute early. This has been wonderful. I would love to talk with you, meet with you. I would love to just have question and answers. I'm sure I couldn't answer all the questions you have to ask, but I hope I've whetted your appetite for something that I think can change the world. Well, let me pray. Father, thank you for these moments. Release us now with your blessing. And help us to love you with our minds. Help us to love you with our bodies. And let the remainder of this weekend change us so that we can go forth to change the world. In Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Bless you.